Well, Kevin is exactly right about the, uh, the greatness of Hebrews chapter 12. It is a great passage. We, um, we find here a series of admonitions, what you might refer to as strong advice, comments from a wise Christian filled with faith. In fact, you can read in the bulletin article this morning the de- how I kind of define the word faithful as opposed to filled with faith. I, we sometimes talk about being faithful, but I think being filled with faith is even a, a better way to say what I think the biblical writer had in mind. And this was strong advice from somebody who was filled with faith to, to people who were wavering. And, and we've talked about this before, but this is the story. We've got some people here who are without doubt facing some persecution. And because they're facing persecution and their faith is on the line, they're wavering. And we'd like to think that they wouldn't waver at all. You'd like to think they would just stand strong. But it's not really the case. It's like Greg Kleinsaucer sitting over here. Greg has not been a Christian for very long. He hasn't been around the church, I should say, very long. Maybe that's the best way to say that. He's had some difficulties in his life that he's freely admitted. If I asked Greg to share this morning the things that he has struggled with, he would freely do so because he has in the past. He's had an alcohol problem. It'd be easy for Greg to be in situations where he was faced with a challenge to give up some newfound beliefs, some things that he's now begun to rely on in his life. He could be challenged to give those up. And because Greg is one who is not so long in the faith, I can understand how he might waver. Greg, I don't want that to happen for you. Praise the Lord. I believe you. But it's not hard to understand how it could. Greg wouldn't be the first one. And these people, I think, are facing something comparable in terms of having come out of a life of Judaism, specifically, and now wrestling with whether or not they really want to go back. And I think persecution is the key. People wrestling with their faith. And so this writer, the Hebrews writer, and again, we don't know exactly who this is. Most people point to Paul, but it may not be Paul. Maybe it's somebody who sounds like Paul, somebody who's got some Pauline blood running through his veins. And he wants to say to these people, here are some things that you need to do. Here are some attitudes that you must have if you are going to live out a life of faithfulness. Faith-filled living in Jesus. And the fact is, it's especially good advice for anybody who might be wavering. Now, I'm not going to look around this morning and say, I think you might be wavering, Larry Luck. Okay? I'm not going to say that because I don't think Larry's wavering. Okay? And I'm not going to point to anybody that I think might be wavering. But you know who you are. You know who you are. You know whether or not you wrestle with your faith in Jesus Christ. I don't, but you do, and God does. And it's not an accident that you're here this morning. We've made several comments already this morning about why we're here and our focus on Christ and our our opportunity to worship and focus completely on Him. It is no accident if you're wavering this morning that you're here. It's, It's like, you know how we always talk about the stars are aligned. 
Things are happening here that we can't explain. And this morning, if you're here and you waver in your faith, something's aligned. I wouldn't say it's so much the stars. I would say it's the will of God. It's the will of God for your life. That's what's aligned. Because God wants something to happen to you this morning. Now you say, Kelly, do you mean specifically to me? Do you mean specifically this morning? Is that what you're talking about? Well, in a sense, that's exactly what I mean. Because I believe that every time we gather together and the Word of God is open and we begin to talk about what God has communicated to us through His Word, that it's a divine appointment. That something is going on here. And that it's not an accident that we're here. That God, through His Word, is working to confront you. Specifically. In your heart this morning. Now, I don't mean if He's going to work to, to say something to you that it means that He's not saying to the person next to you something. It's not as though you're drawn here and they're not. I think we're all drawn here. And that God wants to say something to each one of us this morning. And here are the kinds of things he says. Look at chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. In your struggle against sin, you've not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood and you've forgotten that word of encouragement that addresses you as sons. And we'll go on and read the rest of this in a bit. There is, in fact, very clear, pointed instruction this morning for those who waver. The goal is single-mindedness. And all of us are supposed to have about us this morning some kind of single-mindedness when it comes to our faith. God wants us to focus on Him. He wants us to have our attention on Him. And not just when I say attention, not just the thoughts of my mind for a moment. The idea is that my life is to be directed toward Jesus. The tenor of my life the direction of my life, the pattern of my life, the flow of my life, the history of my life as it, as it goes not just in the past, but as it flows into the future, is supposed to be directed toward God. Now the statements he makes here, they're actually pretty clear. In one sense, the preacher's job is pretty easy this morning. I don't have much to say. Read the text. What the writer says is so clear, unabashedly clear, about what we're supposed to do. He says that we're not supposed to let things hinder us. Throw off those things that hinder us. And the sin so easily entangles. Wouldn't it be nice if that was so easy? Throw it off! There are things that stand in your way of really serving Christ the way that you know you should. Throw those things off. That sin, get rid of that. Just get rid of it. And then you'll be okay. Now, on the surface, that sounds almost, in some ways, cruel. Are you serious? You're going to say to me, throw it off? I'm an alcoholic. Oh, get rid of the bottle. Uh, I'm addicted to pornography. Oh, close down your computer. In one sense, that sounds like it's almost 
Too much to ask. Almost impossible. And yet, this is exactly what God asks of us. Because the power that is in Christ for us to defeat those things and for sin to be eradicated from our lives is real. And that's why Greg has really the opportunity to get rid of the bottle. He really does. Greg, have you been drinking? Recently? No. You're, you're not sober right now? Okay, five miles. Sorry, I misheard for a moment there. I thought, boy, is this going to go backwards really quick? <laughs> Here's a risk, okay? But this guy has not been drinking. He's been five months sober. Why is that? Is it because Greg is so strong? Is it because there are people around him who are supportive and they, they bolster him up and they're responsible for his ability to overcome alcohol? Well, those things are, are there partially. But I'll tell you the real source behind his power. I'll tell you the real way in which he can give up the bottle when there are so many people who can't. The real way is that Jesus Christ is working in his life. That's the real way. Brandy's not here this morning that I can see, but every, every week, many times a day sometimes, we'll have people come in the office, usually seeking food, but oftentimes who are on the streets, oftentimes dealing with alcohol. Sometimes they come in drunk as could be. Recently I had to call the police because this one guy came in, he was just so drunk and I, I couldn't deal with him, I couldn't get him out of the building. Finally I said, sir... I got to call the police. You, you won't leave. You're drunk as could be. I got to call the cops. So the cops came and they got him out of the building. That happens quite often. Alcohol is absolutely in control of those people's lives. Greg Kleinsaucer is not there. And it's because Jesus Christ has said to someone like Greg, get rid of your sin. Put this behind you and... I'm going to give you the power. I'm going to enable you to do this. You're not in this by yourself. You're not alone. I can work this within you. Your life is going to be changed. And Jesus changes him. So it's not quite as absurd as it might look for the Hebrews writer to say, put the sin behind you. Because that's one of the things that God is in the business of doing. He puts things behind us and gives us a single-mindedness. Single-mindedness is, in fact, an answer. Isn't it true that we're so distracted today away from the realities of faith? You just think about your day. You think about the concerns of your life. The things that you have to deal with every day and then those bills that are due every month and the challenges of just living in this society... We are so easily distracted and in the midst of all of that, we're called to single-mindedness. Um, a long time ago now, well actually a long time ago in one case, not so long ago, more recently, I, I had two women in my life that I've been in love with, neither one of which wanted anything to do with me. The first one, I'm married to. In the beginning, it was a disaster. In the beginning, I wanted Robin Smith 
to fall in love with me. It took years. It took years. You know how they always say, like the women sometimes say, oh, he chased me. I had to chase her. I had to chase her. She wanted nothing to do with me. For years. But I persevered. (laughs) And there was single-mindedness. And I was able to convince her that I was in fact the man of her dreams. (laughs) Didn't I? (laughs) And so she finally gave in. But it took perseverance. It took years of being diligent about the task. The other woman is Megan. Megan, when we first adopted her, she couldn't stand me. Like, I mean, she wanted nothing to do with me. If I held her, she cried and squirmed and wanted to get away. If Robin held her, she was very happy. And for months, she wanted nothing to do with me. Like, really. Like, you could tell she did not like me at all. Well, now, we're such great friends. And I love my daughter to pieces, and she loves me. Like, we're really close. It's a beautiful relationship. But I'll tell you, it took a lot of work on my part. I had to convince her that she needed to trust me. That this bald white guy wasn't quite as bad as she thought. And so it worked out. But it takes perseverance. It takes some steadiness here. And it takes single-mindedness toward the task. And that's the first big principle that the writer says here you must have, is some single-mindedness not being hindered by the things that at this point weighed you down. Now, you know the things in your life that have weighed you down. You know the things that are hindrances. And it might sound too simplistic for me to simply say to you, put those things behind you. And in one sense it is. But you're not alone. And God will enable you to put those things behind you. The second thing that the writer says here is that faith means running with perseverance. Run the race, he says, with some perseverance. Now this is something I actually know something about. I've done a little bit of running and had to persevere at times. Run a few marathons. Sometimes it's hard. God calls us to persevere. Everybody knows about marathoning that the most difficult time is after you've run about 20 miles. And it's a physiological thing. It's not just psychological. It's not like everybody just says, well, at the 20-mile mark, you're going to get really tired. It's a physiological thing. At about 20 miles, for most runners, your stores within your body are pretty much depleted. And although you can try and do some carbohydrate loading and various things to build up that store so that you'll last a little bit longer, still, by about 20 miles or so in a race, you're going to be pretty depleted. Now, there have been some times in my life when I have gone through those last six miles pretty easily. For whatever reason, I was in great shape. Things happened well. But in about 1994, I hadn't run a marathon in quite a while. I'd been sick for about three weeks before the marathon. I go into this race, and for 20 miles, I felt really good. It was unbelievable how good I felt. Like at about 17 or 16 miles, I was just flying along, thinking, it's like the old Kelly. I'm still young. I can do this. By 23 miles... I was just about on my hands and knees. Like it took everything I could do to finish that race. And it was hard. 
But I had the chance to finish, and I did. I've never not finished one of these things now. But boy, was it difficult. And I would say that there's a sense that the one that I ran in 1994 was just about my most fulfilling marathon, although it was my slowest by far, by more than an hour. But it was so fulfilling because I had the chance to actually complete it. Several years ago, there was a a runner named Alberto Salazar that I had a chance to run against a couple of times. At the time, Salazar, when I was running, he was the best marathoner in the world, and and I ran against him a couple of times. He stomped me in the ground. Well, when he was about, uh, must have been about 25, he went to Australia, and they did a study on his heart. And he had the most productive heart of any runner that they had ever tested. Like his, his heart would just put out huge volumes of blood and would use the oxygen that was coming into his body in such an efficient way that he was able to, well, he was the best marathoner in the world at that point. And when you have that kind of resource, it enables you to persevere. And you can get through things that others can't get through and struggle through those last six miles because of the resources that are within you. How is it that you're going to, Greg Kleinsaucer or anybody else in here who struggles with things, how is it that you're going to get through if you don't have that kind of inner resource that will enable you to do so? What does the Hebrew writer say is our inner resource that will allow us to persevere? The thing that will help us to move on with endurance through this race? Well, Kevin's already talked about it. He says that we're supposed to fix our eyes on Jesus. And he goes on to say that Jesus is the perfect example of the one who first fixed his eyes. And then he says... For the joy that was set before him. And I want to just focus on that for a moment. What is it that is the joy that was set before Jesus that allowed him to persevere and experience the cross and to rise from the dead and do what he did to go through everything he did and to endure all of that successfully to the end faithful? What is that joy? Anybody want to hazard a guess? Because the text doesn't say and there's a sense in which I'm going to I'm going to kind of hypothesize here. It says he had this inner joy, this strength that produced something for him of great endurance. What do you think this great joy is? Now the text goes on to say that he sat at the right hand of God. I'm sure that he was looking toward that time when he'd be re- reunited with God. He says in John 17, Lord, restore to me the place that I had within your kingdom before the world began. But what is the joy that causes Jesus to be so fixed on where he's headed? What's that? Well, faith is the power, no doubt about it. But what is the thing that that causes him to have such faith? Is it Lily? Such faith. What is the power? that causes him to have that kind of faith, what is it on which he set his eyes? Mark? Well, I, um, I guess what I can is that um, if you would bridge the gap between that and the separation that happened in the Christian state, 
Mark, I want to focus especially on the part when you were talking about the gap between man and sin, or between man and God because of sin. Because I would say this, when it comes to Jesus dying on the cross and the perseverance, everything that he endures, why does he endure that? I think he endured that for you. I think that, yeah, the love that Christ has for humankind is the thing on which he fixed his eyes. That's the joy that was set before him. And when Jesus was contemplating our salvation and being united with him forever, it causes him to even be willing to go to the cross. Because he loved you that much. He loved me that much. And he endures the cross and he perseveres because of the joy. The joy that really is us. We are that joy for him. And it's that joy that drives him to persevere even to the cross. Now, brothers and sisters, we have lots of things that distract us from Jesus. Sometimes I am amazed at how worldly we are. Sometimes I'm amazed at how seldom we think about Christ during the week. Seldom, uh, sometimes I'm amazed when um, something that takes place here, some kind of event where we have the chance to spur one another on and encourage each other and almost no one comes. I'm, I'm amazed sometimes when we'll plan to have small groups or something and people get distracted by life and think there are other things that they have to do and so they don't join a small group. There might be other reasons for not joining a small group but that's certainly one that sometimes happens. I'm amazed how we can talk about something like giving financially to the Lord's work. And we can spend our money on a myriad of things without thinking seriously about our financial responsibilities when it comes to the church. I'm amazed at how little we spend time in the scriptures and have a concern for learning God's word and the scriptures. I'm amazed at how many times there are opportunities for us to talk about Jesus with others and we don't. You might think <laughs> there's another guilt-producing sermon. But that's not the point. The point is not to foster guilt. The point is to ask the question about fixing our eyes. Where are your eyes fixed? What is your hope? What are the chances that you're going to get beyond the things that hinder you if you don't have your eyes fixed? Jesus wanted so badly to be in relationship with you that he went to the cross. 
And the question I want to ask this morning is, how badly do you want to be in relationship to Him? He loves you and persevered. Does your faith stand the test? Do you persevere through the distractions? Do you have the kind of single-mindedness of focus on Christ that He wants you to have in response to the single-mindedness that He had about you? He wants that for your life. And the joy that was set before Him, you can have with that kind of perseverance and single-mindedness, focus, fixing your eyes on Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we all know the things that distract us from you. And Lord, there are people here this morning who are tired of being distracted. And for them especially, I want to pray that you would give them a single-mindedness about you. Help them, Lord, to focus on you, to realize in themselves your power for putting away the things that hinder and the sin that so easily entangles. And Father, I pray you'd bring about within them renewal, a new focus, new eyes to see, a new heart, a new life, new aspirations. And let all those aspirations and all that focus be centered on you. We pray these things through Christ. Amen.